As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Eric Alessi. Eric is a fellow EWMBA class of 2020. You were in the blue cohort, right? Yeah, the Monday, Wednesday blue cohort. That's right. It's a serious one. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and also, you are the marketing insights lead at Pinterest. And as you just told me before the call, you're about to transition to masterclass, which we can talk about later. But before we get into all that, really want to hear about your background, where you grew up, your origin story. Yeah, thanks for having me. I grew up on the East Coast, actually, in New York. My father is Italian, lives in Italy. So my family growing up would spend a lot of time there. Italy has also been sort of an important part of my background. I grew up in, in New York, went to undergrad at Washington University in St. Louis, where I actually studied history and legal studies and made my way out, out west to San Francisco about eight or nine years ago. Before that, I have to ask, what part of Italy? Oh, my family's from the northeast near Venice, a small town called Bassano del Grappa. It's like a region famous for making grappa, which is this Italian liquor that is very popular there, not kind of a controversial tasting alcohol. Why so? It's like a more flavorful vodka, I would say. It's like very, very strong. Oftentimes, Italians, like they put it in like coffee or sort of like other things, but it's very, very strong. It's like people have likened it to jet fuel. Wow. I definitely have to try that. <laughs> yeah, they have some good flavored ones, actually. Lemon flavored or other like interesting things that they infuse it with. Like Italian sodas. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not for everyone, I would say. Got it. And why did your dad come over to the US? He has an interesting story, actually. He owned a uh, jewelry manufacturing company. So they made like jewelry in Italy. And like he did that. His dad did that. Italy, you know, is known for like luxury products, in addition to food and all of that. This region in particular has a lot of smaller family-owned jewelry companies where they make necklaces, bracelets. He always did that. He met my mom. She was also in the jewelry business, worked in like, she made her own like custom jewelry, more like on the artist side. They met at some like jewelry trade show or something. Anyway, so they kind of lived back and forth. Like My mom actually lived in Italy for about 10 years when we were very young and then moved my family back to New York when my brother and I were starting elementary school. My dad, he would just go back and forth. He was running his business from New York, but also going back to Italy. And I would say he's primarily like an Italian, speaks Italian as the first language and then has learned English as well. Got it. You studied arts, history, and legal studies at WashU. Seems like you didn't follow in the family footsteps of jewelry. <laughs> no, I did not. It's funny, though. I actually, as a side project, when I was doing Haas, my brother and I actually did start this small accessories apparel company, like selling like Italian, especially belts, leather belts called Brenta. So I'll actually just, I'll use that as an opportunity to get that out there. It went through a very tough time, you can imagine, during like the financial crisis. So first of all, the price of gold and silver was sky high because of like all the economic uncertainty. 
and people were just not spending disposable income on luxury products. And at the same time, Italy like changed to the euro, which kind of changed the um, monetary dynamics of being a manufacturer because he worked in manufacturing. So that was like the tough time. And then my brother became a photographer. I was thinking about doing law school when I was an undergrad. So yeah, we did not carry on the tradition. How did you go from studying arts, history, and legal studies to coming to Silicon Valley? Basically, my wife at the time, girlfriend, was starting law school actually at Stanford, and we were living together in New York. This is sort of like pretty close after undergrad. We both graduated and we decided to move out there. And I was looking for roles in the Bay Area and was able to find a position at, at Facebook. It was actually a contract. So it was like a, a way to get into tech in user operations. I think at the time, it, tech and a lot of these services were growing a lot. It seemed like a very exciting space. Being a contractor at Facebook, can you share a little bit more about that? There's a lot of roles where it's like a fixed term role. Often it's around a specific type of project or, you know, something that they need particular help on, but like don't have a full time person working on it. Is a recruiting process a little bit easier? Because I know, you know, with Facebook, Google, with all these fangs, it's, it's pretty hard to land a job. And I never even knew about this contractor route. This is actually kind of brilliant. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of roles that are like by their nature contract, like a creative role where it's like you're just doing something for a creative project. And so it's always sort of contract based. But yeah, you know, I do think it is kind of a good way. I mean, especially for somebody like earlier on in their career and also later, too, if, you, if you're trying to pivot, I think it gets you exposure to what you do at that company. Some roles are like contract to hire, basically, like it would be almost expected that you would get the option to convert to full time. Um, other ones are, are not really. If you're trying to move into something new and want to gain experience, I think it can be valuable. I think for me, I, I was doing that. And then at the time, this teammate of mine left to go to Pinterest. She was there for a bit. Let me know about like a role that opened up doing sort of similar work at Pinterest. They were sort of going through a lot of the phases that Facebook had gone through like early on. The growing pains. Yeah, growing pains, having to like deal with user support issues, that whole world of like building a technology company that is probably not always like prioritized at the initial part. Yeah. And so then I switched over to Pinterest, but I, you know, I got relevant experience and met somebody who ended up being just even a good friend now and was able to help me find another role. So I think from that perspective, it can be valuable. So I noticed, you know, you, you were an ops specialist starting at Pinterest and you worked in intellectual property, IP and spam and safety operations. That sounds absolutely fascinating, especially in context of today's yeah, yeah. social media environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Again, given it was a very interesting opportunity and something that I, I think actually was kind of nice about like joining like a smaller company also, because if you look at like a Facebook or and now Pinterest, they have entire teams dedicated to intellectual property, entire teams of people dedicated to spam. Misinformation now is sort of like a big topic. But honestly, back in the day when it was like much smaller company, you had two ops people and they were sort of trying to figure out like all these different issues and working with engineers to build out different tools to take down copyrighted content that was requested to be removed by the content owner, spam content, all these things. And you had to do a little bit of both and then start building out like policies and a framework for doing that. Um, and that's actually how I got started eventually on, on the policy team at Pinterest was sort of like 
moving more into the conceptual role of like building out like our decision-making frameworks for different types of issues and setting out those guidelines. But now it's taken on such relevance with all like the political issues, 2016 and the election. And of course, now with COVID, right, with health misinformation, all these different issues. I think a lot of that kind of blew up in a way after I stopped working on policy or like maybe early on. I think now it's a lot trickier. And I think it's actually a very interesting role, the sort of policy operations role, especially the operations teams at tech companies are a bit of unsung heroes, if you will, of of those companies. There's so much work that is done and obviously never 100% perfect, but a lot of work is done operationally to try to remove or block harassment or things like that, that people just, you know, you don't really think about, especially like with a service like Pinterest or something, you wouldn't think about that. Yeah, it's not always the highest visibility org, but um, incredibly important. Since you've worked in this field, and for our listeners who may not know, I mean, we're talking about when you were doing this, this is back in 2012, 2013, this is almost 10 years ago. Crazy to think about. Definitely, I don't think a lot of these things were top of mind for many of us as we're just trying to figure out social media, right? And just the excitement around it. But I'm curious to ask you, looking back in hindsight, what could we have done differently? Or do you have any ideas as to, this is a big order to ask, but how we could fix some of this stuff, right? Because on one hand, you do have freedom of speech and freedom of expression. On the other hand, it's the Wild West out there, it feels like. Yeah, it's a difficult thing to navigate. And I think typically, you know, people, especially in these roles, are, are trying to do the best jobs they can. In the past, I think these issues were perhaps underfunded and under-resourced sometimes at larger companies. I don't work in this field anymore, but my perception is a lot of companies are hiring many more people, investing a lot more resources, because I think it's talked about a lot more openly and there's a lot more debate over it. And frankly, probably more scrutiny from the government as well. My sense at some point is that like there might be the need for some like sort of regulation I would just speak for myself, personal opinion here, but with certain topics, for example, in like advertising, there's very set guidelines about like what companies should do or allow. And and there's really not anything like that for other types of content and not much direction legally. So I, I think like probably some sort of like regulation would make sense so that it's not each company making up their own decisions. Now it's so much more top of mind again in politics amongst people generally. This is something that nobody, I would say, was really talking about 10 years ago. I definitely am interested in this area because there's always this debate around, again, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, but also the rights of a private enterprise. But, you know, at a certain point, something becomes so ubiquitous right? that it becomes a utility. I don't think we've had this level of access to information since, I think, the invention in the printing press, which was kind of like the last thing. There was a huge technological shift that allowed for this wide dissemination of information. So we're in interesting times for sure. Yeah. I feel like this all kind of exploded after 2016, you know, in like the election. At that point, I was, I think I like just moved out of policy. And so looking at all this stuff from afar a little bit, but I think it's a good thing. It's an important thing, I think, for there to be dialogue about. Yeah. It's an important thing to talk about. Speaking of which, you know, at Pinterest, you move from policy to the insights team. And before we talk about the insights team, I'm just really curious to hear what made you decide to go to the MBA? Because when you change positions, that was around the same time that you started the MBA. Yeah, they were both motivated from the same place. 
And I think at this point in my career, I'd actually been working a bit more on some of our advertising and like organic business issues at Pinterest. So like ad policies, account verification for celebrities and other notable accounts. It made me realize that I enjoyed the business side of it a bit more, the marketing, you know, for us and like the implications for advertising. It was just something that I was naturally interested in. My primary motivation for starting the part-time MBA program it was really like around just knowledge. And I had studied history and humanities in, in undergrad, and I'd never really taken like a marketing class or a strategy class, any, anything like that. Like that obviously are core to an MBA. I just felt like those were huge gaps in knowledge for myself. And it actually ended up being very helpful for transitioning. I would say on the insight side, like really the way that I got that role was that in my career at Pinterest, I'd always worked with data, just accessing data with our internal tools and systems. And I was doing sort of like levels of behavioral insights already. And that helped me be qualified to do partner insights, where it's basically looking at user behavior, making recommendations to advertisers based on trends and other factors. So that was how I got my foot in the door. But like in my interviewing for that role, Internally, I was literally using concepts from the marketing class that I was taking, and it was so helpful for me just to move into, again, that more like business-focused role. The larger third thing, which was entrepreneurship, and it was something that I had always been interested in. Certainly, you know, you don't need to get an MBA to, to be an entrepreneur, but I thought it would help get exposure to that. And also in doing some like side projects, I think it taught me a bit more about the skill sets I think that you, you do need in entrepreneurship. Wait, when did you do that belt company? Was that during the MBA, you said? The initial concept was during the entrepreneurship class where I was trying to put some of those concepts to practice. I think it was, it was good to like learn running ads for something that you have. For me, it was very valuable, like using some of the tools, the advertising tools that I talk about in my day job. Like from the other side. Exactly, yeah. Like, you know, I ran like Pinterest ads. It taught me a lot. And I, I do feel like I got like better understanding of those tools and how advertisers approach digital platforms. Speaking of which, I mean, since you are on the side of the table where, you know, you are providing the insights, right, or figuring out what insights provide, you know, what are some really important insights that you've seen or come across over the years? At a very high level, the things that I think advertisers and marketers really find the most compelling are sort of just like human truths or fundamental changes in shoppers' behavior. And so one example, I think, where we were seeing the most probably drastic changes was during COVID-19. Pinterest, for example, is like a sort of a future planning platform. It's something that people use to like plan a home remodel or a wedding. And people were sort of like changing their usage where they were going a lot more focused on like everyday meals because people were spending more time at home, like home office setups. And there was so much uncertainty at the time in the advertising world, I think, of just what consumers were thinking about, what would resonate. Honestly, I think actually is almost like the flip side now where People are trying to figure out like what the mindset of consumers is in this fluctuation period as things are starting to open up, but like still somewhat of an issue. But anyway, what is, I don't know if you're allowed to share this, but what is the consumer insight now, now that we're in this kind of flex stage? Recently, we were seeing like a big return to things that were put on hold. So like wedding planning, categories like beauty and apparel coming back in a pretty big way. That was maybe as of a month ago. I I haven't looked at the most recent data, but I would imagine there there is a bit more uncertainty now with like the Delta variant. We were seeing, again, like very drastic 
return to normalcy signals. And I think it'll be interesting to see like how much of that continues or doesn't. There's also a good amount of regional variation. And in some places, things were not as shut down. Um, in other places, there were more shut down. Let me ask this pre-COVID. Did you notice any overarching trends over the years as you worked in the Insights team? I don't know about like overarching. A lot of what we were doing was actually looking at trends within different verticals. So the way Pinterest is organized is like we support sales teams in different verticals. So you'd have CPG sales teams and then retail and financial services. So the way we approached insights would we'd be looking sort of at the lens of running studies in a certain vertical and exploring different things that were top of mind in those verticals. Were you in a specific vertical? Yeah, so I've worked on a lot of different ones, but I was particularly focused for a while on telco. So like telecom companies, AT&T and Verizon, and then also like tech companies, Samsung or Apple, also travel. What's telco advertising on Pinterest? I'm really curious. How are they advertising on Pinterest? I think it's a lot based on life moments and also on entertainment. I think entertainment in the telco industry was a huge priority for a long time. If you think of like Verizon and AT&T, we're getting more into like the entertainment world. And so I think there, there was a lot of focus on usage of Pinterest for entertainment, of, you know, like TV watching, and also for the sort of life moments or seasonal moments where people reevaluate what their service providers are. So like, can you identify people who are likely to be in market for a new cell phone plan based on any signals or, you know, based on like device type or something along those lines, or just as an example, in the summertime, a lot of people move, and so they might be rethinking their internet provider, leveraging those key sales opportunities. That, at least, was our recommendation and focus, was to try to contextualize things like that in the context of how people actually use Pinterest, which is planning for a move, planning for a new home. So like that being somewhat of a natural fit with things you'll need when you move. I mean, as part of the Insights team, I'm really curious now, what percentage of your work is you guys coming up and trying to figure out what the data says and then going to the companies to sell them and say, we have these insights versus the big companies coming to you and saying, this is what we want to advertise and market to. You guys figure out how do they actually reach the audience? That's a very good question. It really might be like 50-50. So there's a whole process called RFPing or RFP process, which is a major advertiser would say, hey, like, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat. We're considering a campaign on Gen Z apparel shoppers. Do you have insights around this topic? And then our sales team would basically try to look through all of our internal tools, our widely available reports to share like relevant information. And then the other half is more like, especially when I was working on these sales verticals, is we set like a annual learning agenda for that vertical where we would identify different key like themes that we wanted to explore in those verticals, we would get input from the salespeople who work with these companies to better understand like what some of their priorities are. And honestly, what's kind of interesting is that a lot of times salespeople are using like earnings calls and things like that to get that context. I mean, obviously also conversations with the companies themselves, but they actually kind of have like an interesting like strategic job of trying to understand what the priority of a major corporation is and like what they're investing in. So that gets filtered back to us and we would use those as hypotheses or recommendations of certain topics to look into. And then we try to do a kind of a broad read of like an audience or a topic to really find like different insights that would be relevant to different industries. And so that's more of an open-ended process and it takes a lot of time because you need to start with tons of unfiltered data and insights and 
you're really trying to look for those meaningful nuggets of information, right? That are insights and not just like random pieces of data, but things that tie together, things that illustrate a larger trend are, you know, statistically significant. So it's always like, you know, you get very excited when you find those and they're really compelling, but you know, it takes a lot of time. That's good to hear. I mean, we are as a startup right now, we're trying to find, you know, meaningful metrics to track, right? right? Because there's, there's so much data, but like which ones we focus on, which ones are vanity metrics, which ones are actually meaningful. It's taking us quite a lot of time. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. And a bit of a challenge with data analysis and working with data is that just setting it up, just accessing the data can be very challenging. Yeah. Well, lastly, you know, you're moving to masterclass soon. This is, like you said, hot off the press. Congratulations. Thank you. What prompted the move? (laughs) I've been at Pinterest for a very long time. I felt like I needed a bit more exposure to a different type of company to do something a bit newer. And also on the actually specifically insight side to do different types of insights, because as I was describing, a lot of the insights that I am doing is very much to support our marketing efforts or advertising team and what I'm sort of excited about. So in Masterclass, I'll be doing a bit more understanding brand tracking. I think it'll still be useful for external marketing, but um, a little bit more of like an internal focus as well. Yeah, like what content? Yeah, like how people use Masterclass, what they find really valuable. What really got me excited about this role was that in just talking to people at the company, using it myself, there was such strong overlap between like what I really enjoyed about Pinterest of people using the service to explore their passions and having like a positive feeling about what they're doing. We've all probably been there where you like binge a Netflix show or like a new TV show and spend like hours and hours watching it. And then you're kind of like, felt like you just kind of wasted time. And while I'm sure that's true also with classes, I do think there's an element of it's entertaining, but it's also you're learning something new, you're exploring something that you're interested in. I find that like very much like a compelling value proposition. That's what really excited me about this role is like to stay in that world. But also it's a different business model. It's subscription based. It's actually not not advertising based. So that I think is going to be like a good experience. That's exciting. So to wrap up the interview, I do have to ask, do you have any favorite masterclass sessions. <laughs> I was really nerding out to, uh, I think it was the Gordon Ramsay cooking one. As I was going through it, and there was tips on selecting better vegetables and like the way that you cut herbs. I enjoy cooking. My wife and I, you know, we're also fans of Top Chef and like the cooking world a bit. And so I was making all these notes about like different things to consider when like prepping vegetables and like cooking different types of dishes. So I would say that one for myself was sort of a personal favorite. And then I had also started an interesting one on looking at sales more generally than just selling somebody something, but ways to sort of use persuasion, I guess, in different parts of your life, you know, even if you're not in a sales role. Looking back at my experience with entrepreneurship on the side, I think even if you're not trying to actually sell a thing, it's like you're trying to persuade people about a concept or really showcase the value of something. And I think that's really like an important skill in life. Oh, I have to look it up. I'm a fan of Masterclass. And so I'll share my three favorite I'll tell you, actually, the first one that got me into Masterclass actually was uh, Werner Herzog's Masterclass on Filmmaking. But I subscribed to it because I actually wanted to learn about storytelling. Obviously, a huge part of filmmaking is storytelling. The next one I watched, I remember, was Chris Foss's The Art of the Negotiation. He had wrote, you know, Never Split the Difference. Around the same time, actually, I was taking negotiations at Haas as my last class. And so I thought it was a very interesting supplement that they don't really recommend, but I just wanted to see why academia was so kind of against Chris Voss's FBI negotiation style. And then the third one, 
I'd say this is by far my favorite, is Jimmy Chin's Adventure Photography. Oh, awesome. Oh, yeah. He's the guy who does the rock climbing. The climbing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He shot El Capitan. Yeah. Free Solo. Free Solo. Yeah. Amazing movie. Aside from obviously learning some things in the masterclass, it was just so cinematically beautiful just to watch that masterclass. It was just amazing. I have to check that out. Yeah, he's an amazing director. And for things like that, it's just great to just learn more about these things that you really enjoy and get that exposure in an entertaining way. I'll have to check out those classes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for taking the time to come on the podcast today. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you. You as well. And have a great rest of the day. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate it if you could give us a five-star rating and review. You can also check out more of our content on our website at haaspodcast.org, that's podcast with an S at the end, where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. Until next time, go Bears!